Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good evening, and welcome to Word in Your Ear. Uh, if you haven't been before, I'm David Epworth. This is Mark Ellen. Um, before we start this evening, there are two pieces of uh, housekeeping to take care of, two pieces of business to take care of, both related to um, former guests on, on The Word in Your Ear or The Word podcast. And uh, we've both been in the news recently, and... Um, I, I just wanted to start by, by quoting something written by Giles Brandreth on Twitter the other day. And he says, all I'll say is this, when it comes to trying to be funny, everyone makes mistakes. All I know is that Danny Baker is a great broadcaster, a fine writer, and one of the most decent and delightful guys in the business. I'm honored to know him. And as they say in the House of Commons, I would like to associate myself with the sentiments <laughs> in that. And uh, I'm sure Mark Wood and, you know, other, other people listening to the Word podcast would probably, would probably agree. Nodding sagely out there. Thank you very much. I was excited to see that he got a standing ovation last night. He played his first night in Nottingham uh, yesterday, is the day we recorded, and he got a standing ovation from the audience, which was excellent. Quite right, too. And the second, um, the second um, former uh, guest on the Word podcast has also achieved some slightly more uh, glorious distinction in the last week is Simon Armitage, who's, who's got himself a gig as the Poet Laureate. <laughs> so it just shows, you know, if you come on the Word podcast, on this who knows what it might lead to. OK, which, uh, which brings us to this evening's first guest, and I think, I think it's the first time that we've had an Oscar winner, actually, in our company. So, you know, that's... that. That's and, quite and a Grammy, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, we're going to talk about her wide range of, uh, of work, which will range from Sunday night body-stripping music to pop hits from the 1980s to music for hit films to all kinds of intriguing stuff. Uh, would you please welcome...
producer, arranger, musician, woman of many parts, Anne Dudley. Thank you, thank you. Anne, welcome to the Word Podcast. Thank you, thank you, but I will never be Poet Laureate. <laughs> yeah, never know. Um, we, we traditionally start off on the Word Podcast by asking people what machinery for playing music was in their house when they were a small child? Well, it wasn't quite as antiquated as this No, we're looking at an ancient gramophone. But it wasn't, a, to, to be honest, it was quite a, uh, quite a red-letter day when my dad acquired some, one of these things called a radiogram. Oh, right. Which was like a piece of furniture, really. Of it was like a sort of sideboard in which was, there was a radio and a... With and carved a, legs, carved wooden <laughs> legs, probably. <laughs> Well, I don't know, it's a bit more 60s than that. Yeah, no, yeah. Maybe straight legs. And uh, a turntable in. And um, we had, we didn't have very many records, but I do remember some quite vividly that made a huge impression on me. And one that I, I sometimes talk about is, um, I remember The Ugly Duckling. Danny, oh, Danny oh, Kaye's yeah. version of The Ugly Duckling. Yeah. Danny Kaye's version. And, and I remember, as a kid, being completely taken with the bit where the ugly duckling becomes a swan and, and this music just takes off and just yes, changes, terrific. you know. You've had this verse and then the next verse and then the next verse and then you have a glide and a, and a snowy white back and I suppose really that might have been me as a sort of embryonic arranger trying to analyse how did they do that? How did that happen? And so that's one I remember. Um, and my dad used to like a lot of comedy records. Yes. And we had um, we had the duet from Annie Get Your Gun, I Can Do Anything Better Than You. Yeah. Which again has lots of musical jokes in it, and I used to love that. And then I suppose um, the other sort of music was light classical music, music with a nice tune. And um, actually very, very little pop music. Right. You know, until I was about 14, 15, and I got a transistor radio. So it's interesting, that comedy stuff, it's, it's kind of, it's not sufficiently recognised how, how much of a kind of testing ground it was for the kind of producer and arranger's art, wasn't it? Because it was, it was their art form, wasn't it, to be able to make funny records that had a sound, sense of place about them and a exactly, sense of drama exactly. about and, them. And there was quite a lot in those days. When you think of George Martin Absolutely. produced Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers. Um, right, said Fred. It's, it's a yeah. lost art, isn't it, really? The um, comedy in music is quite rare now, but uh, it's, always, it's always been something that's interested me. How right. do you do it? Right. And he actually said, George Martin, I think that that was the training ground for things as complicated as Sergeant Pepper, wasn't it? That if you could do right, said Fred, you can make all these incredibly complicated <laughs> yeah, in, sound effects. Yeah, and indeed. Background washes of sound. Yeah. So you have very little pop music in the home, so... So what did you do? You learned the piano, did you? Yes, um, we got a piano when I was about seven. And uh, I started to have lessons with uh, Mrs. Scrivener up the road. And uh, I, I wasn't particularly good, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of these people who stick, stick at things. <laughs> so uh, I kept going. And uh, then at the school, I, I learned the recorder, like lots of people learn the recorder. And then... The greatest thrill of my childhood was when my school acquired a clarinet. And the clarinet was to go to the best recorder player. And did I want it? Oh, if I hadn't have got that clarinet, I think, I don't know, you know. 
I would have been distraught. Anyway, I got the clarinet, so I started learning the clarinet. And um, then when I was about 12, 13, I got an exhibition ship to go to the Royal College of Music on Saturdays. So my music education suddenly became really, it was, it's a very, very good musical education, lots of harmony and counterpoint to learn and very high standard of instrumental tuition. And um, th this was sort of available to ordinary kids from ordinary primary, primary schools at the time, you know, because the, the, the education authority would fund it. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I can say a bit of a regret that this is uh, sadly no longer the case. And music, is music education is really being cut back on. I El Elton John did the same thing, didn't he? I think, I think the young it, Elton John did Saturday mornings at yeah, Royal yeah, College of Music. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think we were there at the same no, time. No, I wasn't. No, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so how many grades did you get in piano? I want to know. Oh, I did them all. Go on, how, how, many, is the, how many is them all? I well, were OK, eight. so you, you start with grade one, and, uh, if you, and then you get grade eight, and that's like the top grade. And then you go to music college, and you find that grade eight is, the, is the beginners. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> And you start again. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. So, so were you suddenly surrounded by faster guns? Oh, so yeah, exactly. So you go, you know, the first day that you go to senior college, and you walk down the corridors, and you listen to all these people practicing, and they're doing the shop and the list and the Beethoven and you just feel so small and you think I shouldn't be here I don't right. know why I'm here I'm not good enough I don't know what order this happens but at one point you became the piano player for play school I think the BBC. <laughs> yes. and at another point you, you joined a covers band so which, yeah. which, which order did those things occur? Um, I started playing in the covers band probably when I was about 15, 16. It was really a dance band. We did a lot of jazz as well. Was we that did... the one that Trevor Horn was in? No, that no, was, was later. later. So I was about 20 then, 20. Um, and then play school, I just what, saw... What, so what covers did you do in that band? Covers? Yeah. Oh, it, this was 1980. It was the beginning of disco, you know. We were doing um, Shame, you know. Yeah, 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 Who did that? Evelyn Champagne King? Yeah, yeah, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so you did whatever was called for. Yeah. So, so you, you were kind of classically trained, but you also kept your hand in at pop music and being able to do anything. Um, that you set your stall out. Yes, but um, I actually went... I, I, was, I got very interested in jazz piano. I listened to people like Oscar Peterson, and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. Why can't I do this? I have no idea how this is done. So I actually took myself off and got some jazz piano lessons. And uh, there was a wonderful jazz piano teacher called Peter Sander who um, sort of really got the, taught me the basics of how to improvise and how that all works. A very important part right, of my right. musical education, actually. Now, we, we're going to talk about your, your interest in, in music for films, first of all, before we come to your, uh, your, your pop music career, if we can call it that. So one of your earliest um, memories of being struck by music in films... Was uh, was this, which we were actually listening to a bit of, by the miracle of uh, Terry in the background there, and his harmonica. That's uh, Midnight Cowboy. Um, that's John Barry's music, isn't it? From uh, I suppose the late 1960s. What can you remember about this? What struck you about this? Well, it's. Um, I snuck in to see this film. I was obviously underage. Of course. 
um, and the music in Midnight Cowboy was just what what really seemed to epitomise this this whole new world, you know, that was so rarefied and different and from... quite disturbing. disturbing. Quite disturbing. That's a waltz, isn't it, we've just heard there. Isn't yeah. It? So it's, it's just and, and the score itself, I mean, it's quite unusual to use a harmonica in those days, you know, scores were quite conventional, would be an orchestral sort of thing. But to have something like that with a, with a rhythm section and a harmonica, and it's so atmospheric and nostalgic and wistful, the whole sound of it. And that was one that really struck me, and I thought, gosh, I wonder if I could ever write anything like that. And indeed, I haven't. <laughs> Well, we wanted to ask a very, very basic, <laughs> rudimentary question, which is, which is we're going to talk, uh, play a little bit from L, which is a, a soundtrack you did, uh, I don't, maybe about six, seven years ago, I think, and um, it's, a French, uh, yeah. it's a French thriller. Yeah. And uh, take us through the whole process. What happens from the moment you're contacted and asked to, to supply music to a film? Do they tell you, how do they tell you what kind of thing they're looking for? What, how, how do they give you some indication of, of, well, of the kind of aesthetic there are? The director, Paul Verhoeven, who directed Elle, is one of the most literate um, directors that I've ever come across, which is, and he has a reputation for being wildly provocative and a bit mischievous, which he is as well. But he actually knows a hell of a lot of music. And he actually, um, he'll, play, he'll send me links to things. He'll say, I really like... Uh, from 1 minute 50 to 2 minutes 30 in this piece and it'll always be a classical piece he, n he doesn't really listen to, to film music but he'll send me a piece of Bartok or Shostakovich or Stravinsky and, and there's something about a particular passage that has appealed to him and it's usually a sort of harmonic sequence or it's the way that the instruments have been arranged and, and the way that the orchestration sits so we sit and we talk you know, what's the sound? How can we, how can we personify this strange character, L, and how can we make it into a, a thriller? And so we decide on what the instrumentation should be, and then I'll play him a few things on the piano, and he might say, well, I like that bit, but that bit doesn't quite do what I want it to do. And, and, and we have this sort of very nice open dialogue about it. And then we, we sit and we look at the film, and we decide where there should be score, um, where it should start, where it should end. And then at the end of that session, of that meeting, I've got a list of things to do. So I've got a list of my cues to do, and they've all got numbers, like 1M1 would be the first cue, 1M2 would be the next cue, and that. And then I, over the course of the next few weeks, start sort of working on ideas. And then Paul will come back again, and I'll say, well, I've got this theme for the beginning. And um, he, he was so nice about Elle, actually. He liked the theme so much that he put in a title sequence that they hadn't planned to do so that the theme would have a bit of time to, to be heard by the audience before the film started, which is very rare. <laughs> Presumably you get a, a bit of dialogue where you've got, to, you've got to signal certain things. You've got to engineer people's emotions. You've got to say there is a, a tension, there is a drama, there's go, something is about to occur. Yes, indeed. Or... Or maybe not. Maybe you undercut people's expectations. You know, this is open to discussion. I mean, the music really should, should draw the audience in. It's very difficult to watch a film without any music, actually. It, it's, I don't think I've ever done it. it must no, be very it's, it's quite dry, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as soon as there's some music on it, you, you find the audience is drawn in. They're sort of led along by the logic of the music. 
and the music can underline what the characters aren't necessarily saying, but yeah. what they're feeling and yeah. how important that that might be. So do you see the finished film before you start? Ideally, yes. But that happens rarely nowadays because people keep fiddling with the edit right up until the last minute and it's sometimes like trying to shoot a moving target. It's really So they're testing the film, presumably, as you're working on it. Yeah, they are. And so they're going, we don't like the ending, we'll move that bit to there and so forth. Yeah. And then you have to redo what you've done. Yes, all the time. Right. And then finally, finally, it gets mixed and then you have this... um, whole big mixing session where the the film mixer will mix together the dialogue the sound effects and the music and then that will be the film how long will that take what the whole process process. no that Mm. mixing process does that take days or oh weeks right so you just sit in there with the same people for weeks well i I don't often go to to those the composers don't generally well the composers aren't generally asked. Yes. Because <laughs> no, no, no. they're just going to sit there they and say, would... I want more music. Yeah, well, yeah, I can't yeah, hear yeah, the yeah. music anymore. That's that's works, <laughs> Cut my favourite bit out. Yeah. 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 yeah, how dare you? You can't stop that then. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. so um, you sort of grit your teeth and stay at home and then right. watch but, it afterwards. Because they always say this about films, that, it, that it's a kind of compromising medium, isn't it? You have to. You know, you don't get your own way in a film, do you? No, I don't think anybody does. No, I don't. And uh, but but then it, and it, again, it's a wonderfully collaborative thing. So you you find yourself you are working with people who have different sort of skills, you know, like sound designers and sound mixers. So it can be quite interesting. It's it's, it's quite good. I mean, I like it. Right. Some of, some of it is is to do with kind of existing music. So 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 um, you know, Mamma Mia two, you did. Didn't mm. you? So how does that work? Because you've already got a, a sequence of music that you've got to, 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 to work off. Well, the songs were already in there. Yeah. Um, but there's quite a lot of the film which weren't songs, and the director wanted some music in between the songs. In the style of, yeah. Well, that's the thing, you see. Yeah. How, what should the music be? Should it be completely different to ABBA? Should it... Uh, you know, this was you know part of our discussions. How, how would we do it? And in the end, we decided that actually it would be very interesting and fun, and probably the right thing to do to try and adapt whatever ABBA songs that we could um, into score. So, for example, there's a scene in Paris uh, where the Lily James character is meeting Hugh Skinner, who's the young version of Colin Firth. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there's a very sort of French waltz going on in the background. But it's actually based on a, an ABBA song from 19... Well, I don't know, 78 or something called I Let the Music Speak. Um, and, and there's other examples of that. There's a scene where they're riding up a hill on a donkey and I do this sort of Greek version of Honey Honey with bazookis <laughs> and... Uh, Oh, it's 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 it, it seemed Comedy. right, yeah. And it, it it was very light and sort of fitted it really. Yeah, you won your Oscar for uh, the Full Monty, which also involved very well-known pop tunes as well. And you know, 
I think it's uh, hot chocolate there is uh, features in the, in the film. How, how do you manage that process? You know, because presumably you want people to really respond to the pop tunes. Yeah. But you also want people to notice what you've done. Yes. Or do you not want people to notice what you've done? <laughs> well, people say different things about that. You know, some people will say film music's only good if you don't hear it. But I don't really subscribe to that because otherwise I would have wasted most of my life. <laughs> Um, so I, I feel that the music, in, uh, especially in the Full Monty, needed to be needed to be really quite strongly characterful, and to feel like a character in the film. So it's quite oddly scored. It's a, it's a sort of strange band of a harmonica. Oh, maybe I got that idea from John Barry. Could be. <laughs> harmonica and a baritone sax and an acoustic guitar and an electric guitar, and and so it's this strange sort of scar reggae band um, and uh, they play this quirky little tune which which has its own character um, and that's what that's what the producer wanted actually and um, it seemed to work all right all right and the oscar experience um being on stage for the oscars oh it was bizarre it was quite quite surreal really because you know who you were alongside can you remember um, so in in my category, and in those days, they used to have two music categories. They had music for a comedy or a musical and music for a drama. Oh, right. So the year that I won, the big drama that had won everything was Titanic. So I yeah. wasn't up against Titanic because whatever... I, it may be, it's not a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so I was up against, I think it was Danny Elfman and Hans Zimmer. <laughs> so it was somewhat of a surprise when they yeah. read my name and, and somebody who was watching me on the telly said, it took you an awful long time to get up off your seat and get onto stage because yeah. I didn't sort of equate, they've read my name up, I have to get up and go onto stage because yeah. I never thought it would happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So where do you keep your Oscar? Oh, the Oscar's in a in a cupboard with the uh, with the with the cup for the daffodils at the local horticulture. Oh right, show okay. in, uh, so that's your trophy yeah. cabinet. <laughs> exactly. So, I, I mentioned earlier you've you've also had uh, a lot of success with uh, you know, music for for TV series, which presumably people hear more, don't they? You know, so they get. They must get more of a relationship with it. You know, this is the... We listen to the theme from Jeeves and Worcester here yeah. from... Uh, when's this? The early 90s, I suppose? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Which I... I, I, um, I made the mistake recently on YouTube of watching one Jeeves and Worcester and it's never quite enough. <laughs> you watch another one and another no, one no, and another I, one. I, and I, one of the things I thought was, God, that's a good tune. There. Thank you. And I didn't realise it was yours. It's a, it's a lovely opening sequence. I think the, the animation... Of the band. It's so beautiful. It is. And I remember having a meeting with the animator and, and I played him a demo of the music and, of course, I was very excited about the music and I said, well, this is the music... He sat there completely po-faced and I thought, he doesn't like it. And he said, oh, yeah, OK, I think I'll do something with that. And then he came up with this sequence, which is so full of joy, I never, yeah. I never tire of watching it. Yeah, yeah. So when you were doing that, did you go away and listen to loads of, I don't know, 30s or 20s dance band music? Or did you um, just rely on what's in your head? I didn't really need to because, as we've discussed... <laughs> That's the sort of music that I know. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. That's uh, yeah. That sort of jazzy stuff is uh, 
very much part and parcel part of my DNA. The pole, the pole dark, pole dark. Uh, is, is, is fascinating because that, that's set in whatever it is, 1780 or something. Mm. But you use uh, samples, don't you? You use, you use kind of synthesizers and you use contemporary instruments, don't you? Uh, yes, but subtly. Yeah. I think you wouldn't, you wouldn't think know. of it as being a um, synthesized score. In fact, we have a string orchestra and harp and solo violin. And, yeah. Um, the the, the um, the challenge was to try and make something that sounded a bit Cornish, yeah. whatever that means. And um, <laughs> how, do you, how do you go about doing how do you something go about, Cornish? Especially when you've been born in Chatham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I did do a bit of proper research right. on this, um, as with the internet is not that difficult nowadays. Um, some wonderful reverend in the... You know, late 19th century, early 20th century, had um, travelled round Devon and Cornwall and transcribed folk songs because he thought it was important to collect these folk songs yeah. before the people who sang them had all tied out. And he transcribed these folk songs and they're called Songs of the West. And you can acquire them and watch, look at the manuscript and sort of analyse what the melodies are like, what the harmonies are like. And... Um, I, I looked at them and um, I never used any of the actual melodies, but I noticed that a lot of them were actual, actually modal. And now a mode is, if you play all the white notes on a piano starting on a D, you won't get a minor scale and you won't get a major scale. You've got the, you'll get the Dorian mode. So the music is slightly... Um, slightly modal and that's very much part of what English folk music is is like if that makes sense right right so that's why you went and <laughs> works very well with a, with a man stripped to the waist um, you know scything grass Can, can't say and that exciting the nation's uh, female I've never seen that before yeah. <laughs> but you have to you know you can't have pure motives can you in the in the world of music for TV and film can you you've, you've got to You've got to do what the producer requires. Presumably. You've got to do what the producer requires, but it's interesting what you said about um, whereas a film, even quite a long film, is only going to last two hours, two and a half hours. Um, a TV series, you know, I'm into the fifth series of Poldark, and each, um, each series has had eight, nine, or ten episodes, all of which is an hour. So it's a lot of music. So there's of a, it's a phenomenal amount of musical textures and themes that you have to juggle with. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that your longest kind of relationship with one programme? Um, I suppose it is, actually. I think Jeeves and Worcester was four series, oh, possibly. Yeah. Might, yeah, yeah. 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 So, it, coming up to date, you've, mm. uh, you've done the music for, for Hot the Hustle, which is Chris Addison's film based on... Well, Dirty Rotten Dirty Scandals is kind yeah. of female take on Dirty Rotten Scandals. Uh, we're listening here to... What is this? Is it the main theme? This is... This is the main theme, yes. And this yeah. is very Hot Club of France, isn't it? Was that, was that a direction from him or a direction from you? Or? Well, um, we, we watched Dirty Rotten Scandals yeah. and um, that... Um, that film which stars Michael Caine and Steve Martin is set in the same place, yeah. south of France. And that has a, has a score also based on Stefan Grappelli, Django yeah. Reinhardt sort of stuff. And we really liked the idea of that. And um, so what I particularly like about the sound of that Django Reinhardt guitar is it's, it's a very happy sound, yeah. but it's also a bit louche. 
you know, and it seems to fit these characters very well. Um, and so it's probably the most jazzy thing I've done since Jesus and Worcester. Um, so we have guitar and um, solo violin, a bit of piano, accordion, um, a rhythm section. But it, I've not seen the film, but that, that inevitably calls up for me the sense of people moving about. Oh, yeah, they yeah, Cars energy. arriving, people getting out of cars, yeah. <laughs> going up, up up the stairs of fancy hotels and all, all those those things that are in every movie, aren't they, really? Those kind of basic yeah. moving the action around. Moving the action around, but also um, keeping the comedy going. I mean, it's... Um, I, I really don't like the sort of comic scores that use all the cliches of comic scores like pizzicato strings and bassoons and all that silly stuff. So I'm always trying to find something for a comedy that has got its own personality. Right. Um, and it seems to have a nice energy to it, um, but it's not its not music that you would say it's funny music. No, right. It, it's yeah. got its, its own... It's got a light comic on it. But what, what's this we're listening to now? This is another track from The Hustle. This is... Um, this is uh, Rebel Wilson, who's... Uh, by this time, she's been schooled in how to be a rather more upmarket con right. artist. And she's sort of taking her test, as it were, and passing. Right, so right. So this is very smooth, sort of... Right. In any score of you, you know, when you go through and you look at the script or you look at the, the film, you, have you inevitably got a kind of... The, there's the, the, there's a, an opening bit that has to establish the characters. There's a bit of a drama in the middle. There's a bit of tension. There's a love theme. It, does that stuff apply in nearly every film? I don't think so. No? No. And um, I think each film has its own challenges, really. And, um, you know, sometimes a film has a lot of songs in it. And you find that your big emotional moment has been hijacked by some song that you know, the studio wants to put in it. Oh, really? Yeah, well, yeah. Must, that, that must happen a lot. Yeah, no, it does happen. Because if you get a huge song in a film, it's a hit, isn't yeah. it? Right, yeah, right. if it's the right song. Right, so you just have to give way. You say, I've done all this beautiful work here and you, you've come in here with Celine Dion or whatever, and <laughs> that's what I have to <laughs> give in. Yeah, 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 it's one. no good, it's yeah, no yeah. good taking issue with MGM or whatever. No, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it doesn't. <laughs> he what, who pays the pipe. Yeah, absolutely. So what's this we're listening to? Something sneaky. Right, yes. I, I can't remember. Right, okay. So that's that's the soundtrack for the hustle. So that that's um, let's go through your um, your kind of pop career, if we can call it that. Um, you know, which we touched on earlier. You you started off in cover bands. You met Trevor Horn. What was Trevor Horn doing at the time that you met him? Uh, he was. I was depping in this band. In those days, Tiffany's dance halls used to have bands. In fact, it was part of the musicians' union rules that there had to be... If there's a discotheque, you had to have live music as well. Oh, right, okay. So there's a lot of bands around in these dance halls. And um, I was depping on keyboards and he was depping on bass. And um, we took an instant dislike to each other <laughs> and <laughs> eventually started talking. And he was obviously very ambitious to, uh, to do more than play bass guitar in a band in, in Tiffany's. Yeah. So um, 
uh, and he liked, um, I had a Wurlitzer electric piano at the time, and he said, I really like the sound of your piano, can I hire it? And I said, no, you have to hire me if you want my piano. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm glad I said that. <laughs> was some, he producing them at that stage? He was doing... Um, he was doing sort of demos for people. For pub- Publishers used to pay producers to, to demo songs up yeah. for them, you know. Um, so there was a lot of sort of... There was a lot of small studios around in London and a lot of people doing that sort of work. And he got you... I mean, he was doing Dollars Give Me Back My Heart. Yeah, a, a, a few years later, he, he yeah. got rather better gigs and yeah. um, called me and uh, we did Give Me Back My Heart. And uh, Although Dollar weren't present, I imagine. Not very much. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> so, yeah, seriously, I mean, because you're coming in... This is, what, the beginning of the 80s we're talking 80, about? 82, here. 83. Right, yeah. OK. And, and presumably the way the records are, made, are being made is starting to change, is it, at that point? It was a fantastic time to be in a studio because there was a lot of innovation. Record The record industry was huge in the 80s, yeah. as we all remember. And so there was a lot of money about and um, a lot of studios about and a lot of interest in making things technically better or technically more interesting all the time. I remember each week when the singles would come out on a Thursday or whatever, we would um, we'd go into Psalm Studios if we were working on Dollar or something. He, Trevor would send somebody out and he'd buy all the singles and we'd listen to them in the studio and we'd sort of analyse, well, that's a really good snare drum sound or how do they get that vocal sound on that record and thing. Because every producer was trying to be better than, than, the, than the, the other guys, you know, and there was a lot of ambition to yeah. make fabulous sounding records. And this is before computers have yeah. really come yeah. in in the big way. Yeah, but we had multi-tracks, so we had 24 track multi-tracks and you could bounce things down so you could layer things up a lot and synthesizers you just started to get polyphonic synthesizers and um i got i had a pbg wave which was a polyphonic synthesizer how Uh, much did you pay for that three thousand pounds lots of money money, my god Hell of a lot Nowadays, your phone can do it. You can do it on GarageBand. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know, but bizarrely, the, the the strange the instrument is probably worth more now than it was then. Oh, really? Because people people retro, you know there's people yeah. who are very keen on yeah, buying yeah, these retro yeah, keyboards. Yeah, yeah. So, so do, when you worked you were, on ABC, did you did you hear the version in which those songs came in from ABC? Because it's interesting to know how different they would have been from yeah, what you finished um, up putting I, strings I, on. I, I probably have cassettes somewhere at home of ABC's demos, which I should look out. But there was no strings on them, those were just songs, weren't they? they were just oh, yeah. The no, basic no, 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 well, very basic, yeah. 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 So, but Trevor was presumably, he, he could hear what it could be. Yes. He had an ambition yeah. for a kind of and, a bigger um, sound. Yeah, and ABC were well into it. They liked the sound of making quite an epic an epic album, and Lexicon of Love became really quite a big... Yeah. Sounding record. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've never done string for. I mean, you 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 just um, volunteered to do it and went straight to Abbey Road <laughs> well, and orchestra. Think, well, yeah, I think um, Trevor said, "Do you want to do the string arrangement?" And I said, "Yeah, fine, yeah, fine." Thinking, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, I've, you know. So um, I went home and I listened to all my favourite records that had string arrangements on them and sort of worked out what George Michael, George Martin had done, yeah, yeah. worked out what was the sound of Philadelphia, what they sounded like, and uh, got away with it. 
Well, there were various people that you really loved, didn't you? Um, um, Gamble and Huff and uh, Temptations. Yeah, and... I did like those records. Yeah. The early 70s, mid-70s, The Sound of Philadelphia, yeah. great, great rhythm sections. Teddy Pendergrass, yeah, that yeah, sort yeah. of thing. Great rhythm section, great orchestra arrangements with strings and woodwind and brass and everything sort of fitting together in this great groove. Yeah. Let's talk about Malcolm McLaren. Malcolm McLaren, yes. So you, did you produce this record? Or no, I played, I played keyboards on this record and I, I have a credit as co-writer of some of the songs because right. Malcolm brought all in all this disparate material and we sort of made it made it work in a way. This is a really weird record, isn't it? Buffalo Girls. I mean, really, it's quite weird. It certainly is. Very weird, but, but it was really made, put together by the producers, wasn't it? I mean, he came in with, with a load of, you know, what I suppose you know about might call world music, you know, mm. the African music. Yeah, yeah. Things quite it was... hard to get a hold of in those well, days. Well, he'd, you know? he'd literally been in the south of the southern states of America and in Soweto and yeah. all, all places, and he'd sort of collected a bit of samples of things and brought it all back and it was like this smorgasbord of things you know and, and how do you make a coherent album out of it i mean i don't think the album's coherent but i think we made we made we made some good tracks out of it weren't you um what's the word sort of slightly nervous about the fact that he had no reputation at all as being a songwriter performer no, no. musician no no he's, he's got no musical talent whatsoever. no 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 no, no. <laughs> That didn't bother you, though. You thought, we'll take a risk You here. sort of get around that various ways. I've worked with lots of people who have had very little music <laughs> <laughs> and have made quite good records in yeah. the end. Yeah. How does that work? No, I, mean, I can't no, possibly tell you. No, no. <laughs> it's a closely well, you guarded don't have to name secret. names, but I'm really interested in this. So, you know, people come in, they've just got strong ideas, haven't they? But no way to make it happen. They can't approach the keyboard, can they? No, exactly. But, I mean, Malcolm, um, I, I, don't, I don't mean to do him down at all because no, no. he was most, a most extraordinary creative person. You know, he, was, he had a million ideas all the time. And had it not been for him, we would not have made that record. No, no, um, sure. So he's the starting he, point, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, absolutely. And the creative centre of it, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all you the, have to be the kind of person... People working with him who can put up with that, yeah, who aren't offended by that at all. No, it, it's really quite stimulating to have people like that about. But you just have to sort of slow them down a bit and say, well, look, you know, what does this actually mean? How can we actually make a piece of music out of this? Yeah. Um, Do you find those some of those people are very often a relief to work with after musicians? <laughs> they're different, yeah. Well, because they well, they don't have many options, and they, they must be open to ideas. <laughs> they're open to ideas, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. The Frankie goes to Hollywood record very quickly. I was, it was I was fascinated with that. Trevor, I think, once said that that the four boys Holly sings on it, uh, but the other four boys, I think, he'd recorded them jumping into a swimming pool and used that sample of the four of them jumping into a swimming pool on the record somewhere just to make them appear on the album because they weren't actually in the studio. I don't know if that's true or not, but I well, imagine it was put together by it was put together by a load of your your friends. Well at the time um, by the time Frankie came around, um, computers were beginning to make a bit of an impact yeah. and drum machines in um, studios. So you didn't need a great drummer. Um, you, you could construct your track in the computer. Yeah. 
Um, I, I'm not sure about the swimming pool story. I certainly wasn't present. <laughs> so I, it's, it sounds, I like it. It sounds like yeah. a good story. And you're the, you're the, yours are the, are the, are the court. I, I play of two um, tribes. Yeah, you, I play I two tribes. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, one band that you were a member of is Ars of Noise. I think we're going to listen to a bit of Close to the Edit, which was a hit record in, when are we talking about, the mid-80s? Yeah, 86, 87. And you set out to be really anonymous studio people. You didn't want, you know, any acclaim. You wanted the money, but you didn't want the acclaim. Is that true? Yeah, what was the strategy behind that? Because I can remember getting photographs of you. We first heard about it, I think I was probably at Smash Hits magazine, pictures of spanners arrived. Yes. And that's what we had to publish if we wanted a picture of the art of noise, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. Well, it was all part of... Uh, all credit to Paul Morley, really, who yeah. wanted, to, um, wanted to have this mysterious... Um, faceless band and um, this was very much against the whole aesthetic of the 80s where everybody had extraordinary hair and makeup yes, and clothes all about visuals and so we thought well you know if we don't do that then we could never be out of fashion because you know a spiky hair do looks a bit silly yeah five years later and so we released these these pictures of spanners and cliffs and things. And really, we were the house band at Psalm Studios and we were doing the things like the Malcolm McLaren record. And so we'd got used to um, making music out of some odd elements. So, you know, if somebody slammed a door, we'd think, well, that might make a good snare drum sound. Or if somebody put a cassette into a machine, it used to make a nice sort of clonky yeah, sound. Yeah. So we yeah, thought, yeah. well, we, can, we could sample that around and make that into a rhythm section or somebody playing <laughs> table tennis or something, you know, we could, we could make that work. So it was literally making art out of noises. But this, um, this whole idea of being anonymous uh, it didn't sort of fit in with what the BBC wanted. And by hook or by crook, we found ourselves in the charts with you close were, to yeah, the yeah, edit. Top of the pops. And they said, well, can you do pop, top of the pops? And we said, well, no, not really. We don't really do that sort of thing. Well, the record company said, well, you've got to do top of the pops. Yeah, you know, yeah. in those days, you just had to do top yeah. of the pops. But we had no idea really what we were doing. And they certainly wouldn't, they wouldn't play the video because we weren't in it. And um, they wouldn't let us play behind masks. masks so we had to sort of stand behind these three keyboards and sort of look like we knew what we were doing. But I don't think it was our greatest moment, really. <laughs> Rather <laughs> against the whole strategy, you, wasn't it? Yeah. You have actually... You've, you've, later on, you went back and played yeah. your own versions of the... Uh, yeah, this was really... Versions. I did this really in a way to prove a point. Because... Um, uh, a few years ago, I was giving some inter uh, some interviews about uh, the GT released a compilation of Art of Noise yeah. records, and I was doing an interview with this bloke, quite a distinguished journalist, and he said, "Oh, it's not really music, is it? It's all done by computers." And I remember, and I said, "Well, no, not at all. There's there's a lot of music in it. There's chords and melodies, and but I thought afterwards." If that is people's perception of it, then um, I want to I want to undermine that perception of it yeah, and like play the an unplugged record, isn't it? Yes, yeah, exactly. And play the whole thing yeah. on the piano. Yeah. So um, that was the idea behind this record, but 
Then we started getting a bit more creative with the piano and we decided we'd use the piano for everything. So I would play the rhythms on the lid of the piano and um, sample, you know, hitting the pedals and things. So every sound you hear on this record is from a piano or an electric piano. And if you put things on the strings in a piano, you get this weird mm -hmm. sort of yeah, prepared yeah. piano sound. So um, that's how that came about. Right, right. We were just going to get onto arrangement, and there's one particular one that you've always talked about, which was uh, electronic, and it's um, and getting away with it. And, and why, we're, we're going to hear a bit of that in a moment. Why, why did you like that so much? What, what was it about that that, that really appealed? Well, it was... Um, yes, it's I don't know. Well, it's. Um, I really like the song, and when they sent me the song, and Neil Tennant was producing it, and yeah. he said, oh, "We want a string arrangement, and do do anything you like." You know, he didn't, didn't really have any guidance, and I, I, I really didn't know what to do because it's an odd little song with this keyboard in the middle. It doesn't quite fit the bass and the and the and the tune doesn't quite fit the keyboards. And I thought, what am I going to do with the strings, you know? <laughs> and um, I decided that the way I would approach it was to have the strings sort of floating over the top in this really rather lovely English classical way. And um, I went to record it at Angel Studios, actually, up the road. And uh, with a wonderful engineer who's no longer with us, John Timperley. And as soon as he heard the arrangement... I remember this quite vividly. He went out into the studio and he moved all the microphones further away from the string players because he obviously got it and he realised that this also needed to have this rather classical, more open sound mm -hmm. to it. And I think he got a particularly beautiful sound on the strings. And um, I've always enjoyed listening to it. It's like, it's like almost listening to something that somebody else did and right. uh, that's an odd feeling yeah, you know? yeah. and, I, and I, I think it's really rather good <laughs> your session work uh, uh, astonishing variety you did The Men They Couldn't Hang you did Bewitched uh, you did Pulp you did Rush uh, OMG it was absolutely astonishing the, the, the different types of music but I think you always talked about working with George Michael doing um, uh, the Wham records uh, Careless Whisper wasn't it and I think yes. Young Gun Young the brass Guns. on Young Gun yes that's right and what was, uh, George Michael has a fantastically or had a fantastically um, acute ear couldn't absolutely you? You could yeah. a, a wrong yeah, note yeah. in a chord well he did indeed do that but more than that it wasn't even a wrong note he'd He'd listened to, um, on when we did uh, Young Guns, I was doing the brass arrangement, and um, halfway through the track, there's a change of key. And he realised that the chord that was in the lower key, I'd slightly revoiced it in the upper key. Uh, I mean, it was the same chord, but he heard this difference in the middle parts. Um, and he really was quite, quite an extraordinary ear and very serious focused young man when and he was I very young first. at that time he, he was, was about, really about 19, about 19. 19. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and very ambitious but very business like and focused yeah, yeah. Um, I really did enjoy working with him actually I think did it's you get the impression shame. working on those uh, on those records that they were going to be as big as they were did you oh I mean, no you, no you, you had no you idea never, it was you never know do no. you really no no you work with Paul McCartney 
Paul McCartney, yes. What did you do with Paul McCartney? Give my regards. Well, to it's one of those lovely phone calls that you get. Can you come to our studios tomorrow? Um, George Martin is producing a track for Paul McCartney. Can you come and play keyboards? And so you say yes. Yeah, you do. <laughs> you cancel whatever else. Was yeah, there. yeah. I, I'm, I was going to wash my hair, but I'll, I'll go. Yeah. Um, and I turned up, and it was um, No More Lonely Nights, oh, which right. was yeah. the track from um, Give My Regards to Broad Street. Yeah, yeah. And he'd gathered together a wonderful band of musicians. Dave Gilmore was there on guitar. Yeah, fantastic. And um, it was just a sort of proper old-fashioned session where... You know, we play through the song and then we sort of have some ideas about it and uh, have some suggestions about things. And uh, I remember actually suggesting a chord on it and showing it to Paul. Paul, you could do that chord. Because Paul was playing piano and I was playing synthesizer. Right. So it was surely very hard to tell a Beatle what yes, to do. Yes, indeed. I, <laughs> I was treading very carefully. I think you'll find, Paul. <laughs> I was treading very carefully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he was absolutely charming. He was lovely. But you, you produced also Alice Moyer. Lovely and, Alison, yes. And, uh, and, and Debbie Harry. What are the politics of producing people? What, you know, what do you um, have to learn? Uh, you have to learn how they, in, in what situation they're going to give their best performances. I mean, with Alison, she wanted to do an album of covers because she wanted, she liked the idea of being the voice. She'd always liked records, um, record sleeves <laughs> in the old days where we always used to read the credits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And people would sometimes get the credit as voice. Right. <laughs> and she liked that idea. And so we decided, um, between us we we worked through lots and lots of songs and we found that so, some songs um we both liked very very much um there was a couple of michel legrand songs windmills of your mind and what are you doing the rest of your crimea life? rivers on there I think crimea yeah, river yeah um she's very particular about the lyrics of the song you know if, if they don't appeal to her she won't sing it and she's she's very focused about what she wants to do and how do you go back and get someone to do something again and do it and improve it or do it differently that's, that's, oh, well, you're she's, drawing the great she's quite a perfectionist anyway actually yeah. she um i mean she's such a naturally gifted vocalist that you know every vocal you do is very very good with her yeah. but she's trying to strive for something else so you know she would have she would have done it 50 times yeah. you know, you, what you have to do sometimes is say Alison I think you've sung enough. that enough yes. now yeah. let's edit in let's go back and compile all the best yeah. bits and, and then come back tomorrow and see if you like yeah. it yeah. and then sometimes you come back tomorrow and want to do it all again but uh, that's fine I'm, I'm, I'm happy with people who want you know to work that hard so you're doing a wide range of stuff. You, you're working with orchestras. You did a tour with with Bill Bailey, where which kind of classical educational was it? <laughs> it was an educational um, an ed educational DVD that you can buy. Bill Bailey's remarkable guide to the orchestra because Bill has this wonderful sort of rather off kilter take on why a certain instrument or certain musical styles, how, how they work, for example. So he will, um, we, we went through the instruments of the orchestra and the flute has this slightly Celtic, Celtic sound. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, the oboe is uh, an English pastoral sort of sound, he used to play the theme tune to Emma Dale Farm. The clarinet's a bit sneaky, you mm -hmm. know, a bit okay. sinuous. 
And um, my favourite gag was that the bassoonists, if you take your eye off them, they're always trying to incorporate into their bass lines that they think people can't hear references to the Bee Gees. <laughs> <laughs> so That's a very complicated joke. <laughs> it's an extremely complicated joke. And we had this wonderful thing where we, we played what we said was a concerto for two trumpets. So we played this concerto for two trumpets. And then we played the same piece without the trumpets. And then we took away the strings and then we just, so just turned the wind. And in the end, we just came down to the bassoons who all through this piece were playing How Deep Is Your Love? Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. It was, <laughs> and you could just, there was a wonderful moment where you could hear the audience falling in. <laughs> yeah. And you just toured with, with uh, we just finished the tour with ABC, yeah. you were playing yeah, yeah, yeah. with the orchestra. And, uh, yeah, with, the, with the entire orchestra and conducting. What's it like standing in front of an orchestra and conducting them? Uh, well, it's a strange mixture of being terrifying and very stimulating. I mean, it's so... I can't tell you how wonderful it is, really, when you've... One's life is quite solitary when you're writing music, and then you bring it to an orchestral session, you put it in front of musicians, and they play it, and they, they bring all their talent to it, and it's just a wonderful feeling. Can you when tell what terrifying? Can you tell whether they like it straight away? Can you can you sense their approval? Um, no, they're they're much too professional right, for that. Okay. They play they'll play anything with, with a smile on their face. With the, no, with the same with the same degree of commitment. Yeah, At least yeah. I like to think so. Yeah. Now you've done all this stuff, which is a startling range of stuff. But have you any unfulfilled musical ambitions? Um, I want to write a musical. I've right. decided. Have you got an idea? No, none at all. But I have been to see so many good musicals lately. Come From Away, I saw absolutely brilliant. Hairspray is coming back. I love that. I, I, and I just think there's something so utterly joyful about a great musical. We look forward to it. I'll be there, seriously. <laughs> I'm waiting for the right subject. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Anne Dudley. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.